This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the treatment of cold and flu with naturopath Dr. Colleen Hartwick. We'll learn how to eat right to sleep tight with neurologist Dr. Chris Winter. We'll find out how mindfulness can help with your body image with psychotherapist Tracy Sagrati. And lastly, we'll discover the stigma of chronic pain with researcher Malay Patel. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Nearly everyone can lower their blood pressure, even people currently on blood pressure reducing drugs, by lowering their sodium intake, reports a new study from Northwestern Medicine, Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In the study, middle-aged to elderly participants reduced their salt intake by about one teaspoon a day compared to their usual diet. The result was a decline in systolic blood pressure by about 6 millimeters of mercury, which is comparable to the effect produced by a commonly utilized first-line medication for blood pressure. 70 to 75% of all people, regardless of whether they are already on blood pressure medications or not, are likely to see a reduction in their blood pressure if they lower their sodium in their diet. I'll be joined by Colleen Hartwick in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Dr. Colleen Hartwick is a licensed naturopathic physician who's been in private practice since 2012 in Campbell River, BC. Dr. Hartwick has a special interest in trauma as it pertains to physical illness, and as such, her practice focuses on mental health. In addition, Dr. Hartwick is passionate about sharing her knowledge and has been a part-time instructor at the Canadian School for Nutrition since 2015 and began publishing educational articles with naturopathic currents. Welcome back to the show, Colleen. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. How are you? And, and thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. Yeah. I, you know, the weather, I, uh, I know we're going to compare weather notes here, but, you know, it's, it, November is like that cold, wet, rainy, yucky month here, and you start feeling kind of poopy. I, I know yep. you. I know you get a lot of cold and rainy out there too. What we get as well on the island is what we call nor'easters, where the wind picks up to like forty or fifty kilometers an hour. So the rain tends to come in sideways, which adds a little bit of spice to weather this time of year. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, you're kind of feeling under the weather. So we're we're going to talk about feeling under the weather today, okay? All right, sounds great. Cold and flu are they the same thing or are they different? They are technically different, although I do hear people kind of conflate the two. So some similarities between cold and flu, they're both caused by viral infections. They tend to peak sort of in the 
in the darker months, so sort of between October and late season, you know, April, May. Some differences are that colds are caused by, well, a multitude of different viral families. The most common one is the rhinovirus, coronaviruses, adenoviruses, respiratory syncytial viruses can all cause the symptoms that we associate with a cold. Whereas with flu, it's actually a shorthand for the influenza virus. So uh, what causes the symptoms of flu is a category of virus called influenza virus. And then in terms of how they present, and lots of the listeners, I'm sure, have had both colds and flus, but again, might have conflated the names. Colds tend to be a little bit milder in terms of symptomology, so might get a little bit of fatigue. Fever is not very common. You know, lots of upper respiratory symptoms, whether it's runny nose, sneezing, sore throat, things like that. Influenza, so flu, tends to cause more significant symptomology that tends to come on pretty quickly. So rapid onset and usually a quick exit. More body aches, chills, a fever, maybe headache. Um, can also cause some upper respiratory symptoms as well, like the runny nose and, and sore throat. But again, we tend to see more obvious full body symptoms of pain, achiness, fatigue, and fever. Right. So, you know, we usually have these discussions at this time of year, but are colds and flus really seasonal? I mean, they're being spread year round, but we do tend to see an uptick in people presenting with obvious symptoms of cold or flu, and that's for a variety of different reasons. So as I mentioned, sort of cold and flu season, as it were, picks up, you know, sometime late September, early October, and can run into... Uh, April, May of the of the following year. Why does it pick up in around that time, like September, October? Yeah, so just take a you know step back and observe kind of what's going on in terms of the environment, people's lifestyle. So the days are getting shorter, which means we're getting less sunlight, which means less vitamin D. And as many of us learned, you know, through the pandemic, the the importance of vitamin D for a strong, robust immune system that helps us ward off against these viruses. You know, we're spending more time indoors. Kids have gone back to school, and and as we're in enclosed spaces, it's a lot easier for the respiratory droplets from coughing or sneezing to be spread one to the other. Um, We tend to see maybe some changes in people's diets this time of year with Halloween and then the holiday season, so maybe a little bit more sweets, which can suppress the immune system, changes to exercise habits. I know for myself, I'm I'm far more active in the summer when we've got the warm, bright days as compared to... Uh, to the winter months, to the colder months, and exercise, we know, is really important for for immune function as well. Yeah. You know, my my origin story is, you know, I used to be morbidly obese and not terribly active. You know, part of of that story, which which I didn't really expand upon, was I got sick a lot. You know, like I, I got colds and flus, and they seemed to last longer, and they impacted me more. And then when I changed my ways... And I exercised and I changed what I ate. I found I was getting sick a lot less often and I was bouncing back a lot faster. Is that your experience? Yeah, because carrying 
excess weight, it can increase baseline inflammation and a lot of the symptoms that people experience, whether they're getting a cold or a flu, are the result of the immune system creating all of these uh, chemical mediators, messengers that communicate inflammation. That inflammation is there to help essentially eradicate whatever the virus is, whether it's a cold virus or a flu virus. And so as baseline inflammation is elevated, because maybe we're dealing with excess of body fat, um, can see more a tendency towards infection and more protracted infections. So absolutely, your experience is kind of in alignment with with what I've seen with patients. So we, we talk a lot about the sort of lifestyle changes that sort of help with your overall health. Is is there anything other than you know avoiding inflammation that would be specific to avoiding colds and flus? Yep. So we've got our sort of nutritional basics to help make sure your body has everything that it needs to mount a good defense against colds and flu. So uh, exercise, we mentioned getting enough dietary protein because our immune system produces things called antibodies. They're like these little protein flags that will tag viruses for elimination, getting enough protein. And that typically looks like about a gram per pound people weigh, which is more than a lot of people think. Uh, getting sufficient amounts of vitamin C, while it doesn't necessarily stop you from getting the infection initially. What we see with vitamin C, at least in the research, is that it can help to shorten the duration of colds and flu, so helping us to bounce back more quickly, getting an adequate amounts of zinc, which we can get from foods like pumpkin seeds and the bivalves like oysters and mussels. Um, that's really important for functioning of the immune system. Making sure your gut microbiome is good in good working order because so much of our immune system resides in the gut. So that might look like getting adequate fiber, which again is like 30 grams at least a day or two tablespoons, eating fermented foods, uh, maybe opting for a, a probiotic supplement if you're not super keen on the fermented foods. So on the nutritional side of things, yeah, protein, vitamin C, zinc, probiotics, oh, and optimizing vitamin D. So always good to have the vitamin D tested to know if you're actually deficient and how to appropriately um, dose if it does turn out that your vitamin D levels are low. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about a specific supplement, uh, elderberry. What's its role in immune support and, and what, what sort of form would you recommend to take? So usually what I've recommended to patients, in part because it's highly palatable, is an elderberry syrup, but you can also do elderberry as a tea is actually one of my go-tos for when I get sick with a cold and flu. Um, elderberry is great because it's got some antiviral properties. It's what we consider a, a diaphoretic, so it can help to people to spike a bit of a fever. And lots of your audience members might already know that fever is actually a really important uh, immune mechanism when we're fighting off an infection because what a fever does is it basically makes the body a less hospitable environment for a virus to spread. I forgot to mention this in keeping with cold and flu season that um, the influenza virus is a lot more stable at cold temperatures so it allows it to survive on surfaces and spread more easily as we move into the cooler months. So body's ability to mount a fever burns off the virus as sort of a, a casual way of thinking of it. And during fever as well, our bone marrow will start to pump out more white blood cells. So we eradicate the virus more easily and build a more robust army when we're able to spike a fever and elderberry can help us to do that. Okay. If we're, uh, if we're unfortunate and we do get a cold or flu, what can we do to help with the symptoms? 
So on the cold side of things, again, more characterized by upper respiratory symptoms. So runny nose, sneezing, sore throat. So for the runny nose, some of my favorite things to do are to do some sort of healing irrigation of the sinuses. So you could use a mister or a neti pot to flush out all of the inflammation, flush out any of the viral particles, help you breathe a little bit more easily if your listeners are not super keen on putting salt water up their nose. Yep. Then to do a steam inhalation is a nice secondary option. Based on the hot water, put in a few drops of your favorite essential oil. Go-to is, you know, eucalyptus oil or maybe oil of oregano, breathe that in for 10 or 15 minutes. That can help to um, clear up the sinuses and those essential oils. They're technically called volatile oils. They have some antimicrobial properties as well, so it can help us to fend off against the virus that's causing the symptoms. If it's more of a sore throat that you're experiencing, maybe not quite so sinusy, gargling with salt water can be quite nice. Sage tea is really good for laryngitis or inflamed throat. Um, or looking at doing what are called demulcents, so herbs that when they mix with water or saliva contain something called mucilage, like plant mucus that will coat um, the back of your throat to help uh, give you some symptomatic relief. So these are things like uh, licorice root or slippery elm um, can be really nice and soothing for a dry, irritated throat. Uh, what about echinacea? What would you use that for? Um, Echinacea, again, similar to elderberry, is one of my go-tos for acute infection. It helps to increase white blood cell count. Um, so colds and flus, but more so colds, is where I find myself using echinacea. Um, and usually do it in two weeks for uh, with a break interspersed. So, you know, we, we've gone through the pandemic and, you know, our immune systems are, are challenged differently now. You know, we were in isolation and now we're back seeing everybody. And so things are spreading. In your practice, are you, are you seeing people with flus and how are they dealing with that? Are they, are, are they lasting longer in your experience? What are you seeing? So we've had a little bit of a delayed flu season here on Vancouver Island because it's been actually quite nice weather-wise, which is unusual for us. So what I've seen so far is actually a worsening of people's uh, allergy symptoms, uh, but I anticipate over the coming weeks to see more and more patients dealing with colds and flus as we're back to, you know, pre-pandemic behavior where people aren't really masking up as much unless you're in the hospitals here. Um, you know, we're out in social settings, in restaurants and uh, things like that. So, so far I haven't seen huge uptick, but we're still kind of early days, so I anticipate uh, seeing more patients with more frequent colds and flus. And are, are those flus lasting longer? Uh, it's tough to say. Again, early days, so I haven't seen them last longer, but that might change in the coming weeks. Okay, let, let's talk about what I would call an ancillary illness, which is a cold sore, which sometimes gets triggered if you have a cold or flu. How should people deal with that? So cold sores, again, some of your listeners might have them. It's caused by herpes simplex virus. And the nature of that family of viruses is they cause sort of chronic latent infection. So once you get the cold sore virus, it will stay dormant um, and kind of wait for the right timing to strike. And the right time for a cold sore to reemerge is once the immune system's been suppressed. And one of the instances where immune system can get suppressed is when we're dealing with another infection like a cold or a flu. So now our our immune resources are essentially being split between fighting off the acute cold or flu, leaving a bit of a, a scarcity to keep that 
colds or a virus um, at bay. So again, not uncommon to see a flare-up of cold sores during cold and flu season because the immune system is splitting its resources. Things that can be done to help address a cold sore flare-up, um, lemon balm tea or lemon balm capsules. It's got some antiviral properties uh, against the herpes family of viruses, so the virus that can cause uh, cold sores. Uh, L-lysine as an amino acid, both topically and internally. Lots of good evidence there in terms of helping to decrease viral load. So, again, to get that cold sore virus at bay. Okay, so, I, you know, you've been on the show a lot, and, and I kind of know where this is going to go. But if our listeners were inclined to pick up some of the products that you mentioned, what would be your recommendation? I mean, my first recommendation is always to speak to either a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor, someone who knows your health history and knows what's going to be safe and appropriate for you. Because some of the herbs that we briefly touched on, they can have some contraindications. So again, always good to consult with someone um, who knows your unique health needs. And beyond that, when it comes to maybe stopping by your local health food store, you know, looking for reputable companies when you're choosing supplements. So you know, ideally something made in Canada um, with uh, standardization if you're going for a herbal product and then looking for, I think we mentioned this in in the previous conversation, looking for an ISO 17025 certification. That's a third-party accredited lab of the highest standard that's there to to test the products to make sure that, that what's on the label is actually in the product, that the dosages are actually aligned and that there's no extra goodies that we may or may not want uh, present in the product. So do look for that ISO certification. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're very welcome. So glad that you had me back and it was great to chat with you. That was Dr. Colleen Hartwick. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss some tips for a good night's sleep on The Tonic. OMTO is back, brought to you by Cold FX, Canprev, and AOR. It's a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it most. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers. To reserve your class, go to www.omto.ca. OMTO, December 17th. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Feeling exhausted? You should consider how your diet may be impacting your sleep. A new survey by MyFitnessPal reveals a staggering majority of Canadians, almost 85%, struggle with falling asleep, while half, about 52%, say they're not getting enough sleep. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Chris Winter, a neurologist, sleep specialist, and MyFitnessPal partner. Dr. Winter has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research since 1993. Dr. Winter joins us today to discuss the important connections 
between nutrition and sleep. Welcome to the show, Dr. Winter. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. So we talk about the interconnectedness of uh, like all aspects of your health all the time on the show, but we're going to focus on nutrition and sleep. So how do they impact each other? Yeah, I think that a lot of times we've viewed these as sort of separate things, that nutrition's important and sleep's important, but there's really interesting connections between nutrition and sleep in both directions. In other words, when we don't sleep well or we don't sleep enough, one of our brain's compensatory mechanisms is essentially trying to eat ourselves awake. So we make interesting food choices. We tend to crave things that offer more, you know, quicker energy. We, we, we tend to eat more than necessarily we need. And when an individual is eating poorly, it tends to impact sleep in negative ways. So it's interesting and important, I think, to focus on both directions of that relationship and, and not think of them as each in their own box. So, so you don't know this, but regular listeners on the show know that in one year I lost 52 pounds, kind of changed my health. And one of the key aspects of doing that was making sure that I went to bed early because for a number of reasons. One, it stopped me from eating late at night, which I would do in order to keep awake, which is something you kind of just alluded to. But also I found that the more sleep I got, the easier it was for me to take off the weight. And I think you're, you're, you're kind of getting to that as well, right? That's exactly right. Um, I, I think that we talk a lot to our patients about, hey, listen, you know, if you're struggling with your weight, give yourself some grace and, and really let's focus on some things that might be a little bit easier to change and fix, and then we'll see what happens. And I think sleep's a big one that a lot of individuals feel like, hey, you know, if I'm trying to lose weight, I need to get up at five o'clock and go to the gym. And a lot of times it might be better off, you might be better off just sleeping during that time. I think most, most of us know that it's important to get a good night's sleep, right? Like theoretically, we know uh, that it's probably better that it, it, we sleep more than less. Yet, we don't seem to be prioritizing that. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the theoretical and then there's the now. And I always thought about that in college, like... On the weekend, I should get up and organize and clean my room. Well, I never got up to do that. But if it was, I need to be up to take this medical entrance exam that I've paid a bunch of money for, and if I don't take it, I won't get to go to school, I always got up for that. Right. So, you know, to me, it's, it's really about, you know, knowing something doesn't make it actionable. It has to be something deeper than that to get us out of bed, into the gym, or off the couch watching you know, the Gilded Age and into bed, you know, getting the sleep that we need. So I, I find that piece really interesting as a clinician. How do you it, – it's not about transmitting information anymore. Nobody out there is thinking that sleep's not important or exercise isn't important. It's really about how do you make that actionable, um, which I think, you know, is a big part of the – the app that we're that we you know my fitness pal developed which is there's a lot of really great sleep technology out there but if it's not guiding your behavior it doesn't really do anything i always joke that we could put mris in everybody's you know homes maybe we will one day and they're generating amazing pictures of our pancreas well what do you do with it like you've got this incredible image that's got all kinds of diagnostic possibilities, but if you don't have the instruction book or, or what to do with the data, it just kind of sits there. So I'm really excited about this app in the sense that 
This is kind of helping you figure out what's personally actionable and what things that you're doing are actually making a difference in terms of not only your nutrition, which in the MyFitnessPal app is tracked forever, but in terms of your sleep, which I think is really cool. I, you know, I think the concept of good health is too nebulous. Like, like if it's cause and effect, it's really hard to quantify what it, what good health feels like until you have good health, and then you can kind of harken back to when you don't have good health and you know the difference. Or if you've had good health and you lose it, then all of a sudden it becomes, oh, now I know what I had before. And I think maybe that's part of it too. Like it's almost like a, it's an incremental loss as we get older, as we get busier, all those things that we have to do, as we put on more weight, and all of a sudden you wake up and you're in a different place than you were maybe when you were 20 years younger. I I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of truth to that. It also just feels overwhelming. It's sort of like, I don't know, getting into Genesis, the, 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 the musical group. You're like, I've never really listened to Genesis before. Like, where do I start? Their catalog goes back forever. Like, it just <laughs> seems too much. And kind of like what you said, once you, you pick out Duke and you listen to that album, you're like, oh, this is pretty good. I like these songs. You kind of branch. I, I think that, that our health is like that, too. And, and that's why I always like to talk to patients about, look, there is so much about your health that is not controllable. Right. Your sleep, your exercise, your food, and sort of your mental health, to some extent, are things that you have control over. Four things. Everything else is genes and luck. Yep. So if you can try to make the whole concept of healthcare, like you were saying, smaller and more controllable, maybe that offers people a little bit more access and enthusiasm for taking some steps rather than, like you said, just throwing up your hands. It's just too much. I have no idea. All right. So, so I, I know there are certain things uh, and certain times of the day when I can eat, and that's going to impact me differently in terms of my sleep. So, for example, if I want to get a good night's sleep, I'm, I'm not going to have alcohol or a lot of alcohol right before I go to sleep because I'll fall asleep, but I won't stay asleep. Can you give us some pointers on, on some of the foods that help and some of the ones that don't? I think that's a big one. Alcohol is a huge one. I mean, a yeah. lot of people say things like, well, I hear what you're saying about alcohol, but, you know, for me, it really helps relax me, wind me down, get me to sleep better, and it really doesn't do that for anyone. Nope. I mean, it might make you sedated faster, but, yes. I, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting better health, you're getting better outcomes from the sleep that you're getting. So I think that's a big one. You mentioned earlier the idea of, just trying to cut your food off a little bit earlier. I think that's a huge one, too. I think for individual, you know, I always ask patients when they come to the clinic, you know, hey, you've lost 20 pounds since you were here six months ago. Was that purposeful? And if so, what, what, what worked for you? Like, what, what was your strategy and goal? And, and for a lot of people, it is just eating earlier and then cutting off their food at a certain time. Because, I, you know, I find myself often eating at night out of boredom. Yep. And I don't, I'm not hungry. I'm just, this is kind of a fun show. It's the first time I've kind of relaxed all day long. Yeah, I'll have some of these, like, you know, Mexican street corn flavored corn chips from Trader Joe's, whatever. You're just, yeah. you're just pulling stuff out. But you're not, I'm not hungry. If somebody said, no, you can't have that, I'm not hungry. I'm just eating just to, to eat. So I think that when you cut food off, that makes a big difference. And then I think, you know, if you're going to eat at night, I always tell patients, don't go to bed hungry. If right. you're like, you've got that pit in your stomach, well, you can fill it, but let's fill it with things that are actually going to support your sleep. Nuts and dried fruit and hummus, you know, hummus chickpeas have tons of tryptophan in them. And so there's little, little hummus cups with little pretzel crackers. You know, that's a great 
strategy, you know, something to eat at night, or if you were traveling and you got to go into the little travel place in the airport and find something reasonable before your red eye, like that's a great snack to, to grab onto. So, I, I mean, I think that, and then, you know, kind of what you were saying, you went on your own food and weight loss journey. What I like about the app is you know, people are listening to your show now saying, well, I don't know if that works for me, or I'm somebody who, if I eat late at night, it makes me feel bad. You know, so, you know, using an app where you can take it out of the realm of, for the average human on this earth, this food helps with sleep, this one doesn't. And you figure it out. If you want to disagree with me about the beer, go right ahead. I mean, Canada has some great beer. So do the, do the your own experiment. I actually did it one time. I wore my little fitness app and for two weeks, did no alcohol at all. And then for two weeks, I drank two really strong beers right before I went to bed. Mm-hmm. And you look at the data, and so that's what the little app is trying to do, is to integrate what you're eating with the data you're getting from your Fitbit, your Whoop, your Garmin, so you can make decisions about you as an individual and not just what general foods help general people to help you sleep better and be more fit. We have time for one last question. So I, I know it, it's almost impossible to distill it down to one factor, but in your experience, in your experience if you were going to give somebody one, your top tip to get a good night's sleep, what would it be? Huh. My top tip for a good night's sleep is being equally happy in bed awake as you are asleep. I think for a lot of individuals, it really comes down to a performance expectation. You're going to go to bed tonight at 11, and every now and then in our lives, it's going to be 1130, and you're still going to be awake. I think how we respond to that situation is everything when it comes to your sleep. And if you're somebody who's like, oh, kind of strange, I'm usually asleep by this time, but I'm not tonight, but it's okay because it's impossible not to sleep and it's kind of nice to be sitting here, you know, relaxing in my comfortable bed and it's going to be okay. I'm probably never going to speak to you in your lifetime. But if you're somebody who's panicked and, oh my God, I've got a lot of things going on tomorrow, I need to be asleep. I've got to take something, I've got to do something about this terrible situation, which we've kind of been conditioned to think is a terrible situation. I think that's where a lot of people struggle. So my tip would be, if you're in bed and you fall asleep quick, great. If it takes you a while to fall asleep, you will eventually. It's impossible not to sleep. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss mindfulness and body image on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. 
Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Tracy Sograti has an eclectic background in molecular biology, psychology, and nursing. She practices psychotherapy and yoga therapy and has over 20 years of experience in leading classes, workshops, and events. She believes that the tools of mindfulness pave the way for a deeply meaningful life at any stage. You can find her at www.sograttiyoga.com, Sograti Yoga on Facebook, or at Tracy Sograti on Instagram. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How's it hanging? What's going on? Everything's beautiful. It's wonderful. I'm, uh, you know, most especially because I'm here with you talking about one of my favorite things. Body image, yeah? Body image. All right. So why did you want to talk about body image now? Why is this relevant? Thank you. That was the magic question. So I would say that the vast majority of people who come to see me, and and I'm talking about like psychotherapy clients, um, have... from mild to serious concerns over their body image. And and it's not that they're necessarily coming to see me about body image. It's just through the initial assessment process. Basically, that's what comes up. That's what comes up. And, and, you know, I find uh, this particular topic, you know, it interferes with their ability to feel comfortable in their skin, to you know, do the things they want to do. It interferes with enjoying events with friends or family or just you know, just experiencing their lives. And um, because my demographic, like if I think about, you know, I, I have some teens in my clinical practice, but mm-hmm. I, I would say like it's kind of 18 and up, and, but the bulk of my clients are like 40 and up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is really concerning because the reality is, is as we age, we go through health challenges, the body breaks down, and it it will look different. And... You know, on the one hand, it's pretty normal from time to time to have some, you know, appearance concerns, um, you know, especially if we're going through something, you know, and for me, I'm thinking, okay, like post-birth or like, you know, post a surgery that I mm-hmm. had, like, yep. you know, certainly that's pretty normal. But for some, like, it just kind of extends out and, and takes over their their life and their mood, their lifestyle, their finances and their health. Um so, you know, for me, I'm like, every time I see a client and this comes up, I think to myself, okay, I feel like there needs to be more mainstream information around, like, what is, what actually, like, how do I know if I'm over-concerned with my appearance? Yeah, okay, so this is really interesting to me because, you know, I had the surgery and yeah. and as a result of it, you know, my body was greatly altered. And yeah. I can tell you, leaving aside the pain and the difficulty yeah. and the surgery and, yeah. and all the fallout to my health, it was how I viewed myself and looking at myself in the mirror that I found the hardest issue to broach. Yes. And what you yeah. what you just said to me, I found a little bit troubling, not in that aspect, but when yeah. you said that most of your clients are over 40 and people are still struggling with their yeah. body image at that age. Like I, I kind of, I can wrap my head around a teenager feeling the, yeah. those ways, right? Like, you know, you, yeah. you're entering into your sexuality, you're trying to find yeah. partners, but like when you're in your 40s and 50s, presumably yeah. those issues have reconciled. So when you're telling me that you're dealing with that clinically yeah. uh, day in, day out, I find that surprising and troubling. Yes, that is exactly why I wanted to open this. Uh, that's why I wanted to broach the, the discussion because I'm telling you, it is rampant. And and every time I encounter it, I think to myself, oh my goodness, like, okay, there needs to be much more discussion around what this is and 
you know, and what we can do about it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I've started to do with clients is kind of, you know, give them give them a little, like, checklist. Like, how do I know if I'm over-concerned? Right. And I'll just give you, I'll just give you, like, a couple of indications sure. that, that are pretty common. And, and there's a huge list, um, but he, here's a couple. Um, if you notice that very often you feel very dissatisfied with one or more aspects of your appearance. Mm-hmm. If thinking about your appearance upsets you greatly pretty frequently. If you frequently check your appearance in the mirror or other reflective surfaces, if you uh, hold your body in certain positions to hide aspects of your appearance pretty frequently, mm-hmm. if you compare your body with others, you know, on TV or social media, pretty frequently, um, these are these are all uh, you know some some hints that your appearance over concern is actually interfering with your life. And then, I mean, there's many more things that I ask clients, like if they're avoiding socializing, if they're avoiding physical contact, and that could be like, I suddenly, I don't want my spouse to hug me or touch me anymore because I'm so concerned about my body. So it's stuff like that, that we're tracking, you know, and I am going to, I'm going to do an article um, for the tonic as well, just to outline more of these details. But these are some of the things to notice and, and to, to be aware of if appearance over concern is, is one of the things that's happening for you. So, you know, as a result of the surgery that I had, I had a temporary colostomy, which I really, really, struggled with yeah and it made me very conscious of the way I look and the way I present uh, because you know my brand is health and wellness and here I am with this strange lump on my stomach and how do I feel about that and and what does it look like and and what does that mean for my partner and and all those things and you know for me I'm quite fortunate because it was a temporary situation and you know that that got reversed recently but I can only imagine the mental anguish that somebody goes through having those, you know, real changes to their body be permanent, let alone the things that you're born. You know, you're, you're, spot, you're, you're speaking with somebody who went bald at the age of 15. You know, like, yeah. I, I get it. Trust me, I get yeah. it. What do we do? Like, how, how do we yeah. reconcile this? You said something there that's, that's really important is that there are certain things that we have to learn to accept. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And okay, so what's the barrier to acceptance? I'm kind of working my way backwards based yeah, yeah. on what you said. Yep. Um, and so the barrier is the the impact of appearance over concern and the fact that some of the behaviors that we do because of the appearance over concern actually trap us in this cycle where our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and the appearance becomes more and more important. So let me tell you what that is. Some of the things that we do is we do some called body checking or reassurance seeking. This could include things like mirror checking, using mirrors that magnify, checking your appearance in reflective surfaces, so like shop windows. Um, You know, for some people, it might be weighing themselves a lot more than, you know, maybe once per week. Checking areas of your body by touching uh, pinching by mentally scanning the area, you know. So one of the things I'm tracking with clients when they come in is actually like how often they're looking down at their body when they're sitting and talking to me. Mm-hmm. Some people take you know photographs or video footage of themselves and use that for checking, or they measure comparing your appearance now to to old photos of your younger self. Yeah. The other thing that uh, people engage in is actually altering their looks. Yep. Um, now, this is this is interesting because I, I think we're going to have 
you know, some uh, some interesting discussion about this. This can you you might alter your looks um, because you're so over concerned about your appearance by using tons of cosmetics, right? So like taking two hours to get ready. It might be like following strict routines around your hair. You could also uh, use extreme diets. Yep. Right? Take mm-hmm. unnecessary supplements or over exercise. So this is where we're exercising so excessively that, you know, we're getting to a point where the body is actually breaking down healthy tissue. Yep. Um, and then finally, of course, it, it might look like actually, um, you know, excessive use of cosmetic surgery. Right? Yeah. So these are these are some of the things that, that can actually, uh, you know, totally impact your ability to focus at work, your ability to have an intimate relationship with your partner, right? If you're so concerned, it can, it can impact uh, your willingness to take family photos. Yep. And every time you succumb to those worries, you don't give yourself the opportunity to test out your negative predictions. To a limited extent, I can check some of those boxes. I mean, there. Yeah. when I carried the extra weight, there's probably about a decade where I would not have my picture taken. Some of those behaviors, you know, like exercising to the point, uh, the point where you're breaking down muscles, you know, I, I have 100% damaged my body by pushing hard. Now, that could be yeah. a function of age, and it hasn't gotten to the point where it's serious, but I do have chronic injuries now that impact my ability to exercise because I overdid it. I'll tell you something, though. The silver lining about the surgeries that I had is I came to realize something very important, and that is nobody pays as much attention to me as me. And there so, you go. And so, and so you know, people uh, apparently had no idea that I had a colostomy, probably weren't even yeah. paying attention. Exactly. In, in my mind, uh, everybody was watching me. Of course, yeah. that, nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody cares. And I think that's probably the takeaway. I, and yeah. I actually, like, I really, uh, you know, obviously I still care about my appearance. I'm a public yeah. person and yeah. I am, you know, vain and, and, you know, a narcissist. So I can't, <laughs> I can't help, I can't help but do that. But, I'm nodding along with you. No one can see me, but I'm nodding. But but I have come to appreciate that, you know, it probably doesn't matter as much as I thought it did. Yeah. Because, again, I, I'm more fixated on me than anybody else is. And, and certainly my wife doesn't care. I mean, you know, if she really cared, exactly. she would have left exactly. me lo- long ago. So, so I've come to that little trick that has allowed me to sort of escape you know, the negative cycle. Do you have any ways that people can get started, you know, moving off of, of this sort of dysmorphia? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I would say the first thing is to retrain your attention and do that by, um, you know, simple things, postpone body checking. So if you notice that you're about to check your body, just postpone it. Yep. Postpone it by an hour, you know, and, and make a goal to, to actually reduce it over time. So it might be the number of times per day or the amount of time. Um, you know, reduce appearance-altering behaviors to, to like, a healthy, balanced place. So exercise because you want, you know, you want to be able to move as you get older and you want great cardiovascular health, but not so that you're emaciated. Yep. Um, you know, evaluate short-term versus long-term consequences of avoidance behaviors. And, and then I think the last thing is to really place your time and energy on other values in your life, just to, just to get a little more balance in there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was my pleasure. Have a great day, Jamie. That was Tracy Sograti. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic.
I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Malay Patel has been a physiotherapist for 12 years after graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Physiotherapy in 2009. He's added to his skills and experience by working in clinic settings while continuously adding to his education, including earning a Certificate of Orthopedic Manual Therapy, Neurokinetic Therapy, and Soft Tissue Management. He's received training in concussion care, and he's taken uh, cardiac rehabilitation from the University of Wisconsin. Today, he is the owner of Be Active Physio in Oakville, Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on the show, Jamie. What is National Pain Awareness Week and why is it so important to recognize it? National Pain Awareness Week is really important to recognize as it serves an essential spark in conversation about chronic pain, educates the public and healthcare professional, reduces the stigma associated with chronic pain. Nobody wants to talk about the pain. Everyone wants to hide it, ignore it. Those are the usual behavior we see it, right? And it advocates for a better support for people who are managing, like who are dealing with chronic pain and and leads to kind of like prioritize pain, start the pain management, right? And it's kind of like a spotlight for the issue of chronic pain. Such a large number we have it. 8 million Canadians, those are suffering from chronic pain. So we need to start having conversations so people can start addressing it. Right. So, so we, you know, we cover uh, pain issues on the show frequently. And, you know, there's a, a distinction between acute and chronic pain. And, and yeah. acute is like something if you have an injury, like a broken bone, or, you know, you do something when you're working out. Chronic pain is a persistent pain. And uh, it raises some challenges for people. So, so what are the challenges that you see for Canadians navigating our healthcare system who suffer from chronic pain? That's a great question. Acute and chronic, right? Um, any pain that's persistent more than three months defined as a chronic pain, especially who is suffering from chronic pain. Navigating the healthcare system is quite a bit of challenge for them. Often longer wait times, limited access to the specialized care, uncertainty about where to begin their pain management uh, journey itself. Not knowing who to reach out, a physiotherapist, let's say if it's musculoskeletal, type of pain, then they should be reaching out to physiotherapist being a primary healthcare provider, they can guide it. But often they are going into the longer wait times of physicians, waiting for specialists to tell them, go to physiotherapy. So often those kind of knowledge of not knowing where to start, those are very difficult. And it's a snowball effect. Once you take one step, 
you have success and then next one becomes easy but if you don't take the first one it gets delayed and it gets put up so my experience i have chronic issues with with my ankle and i actually have a partially torn achilles so when I, when i had rehab i got referred by my physician what what should people do if they're suffering from pain like do, should they go to their physician or are there other routes where they should start they can go to physician right physicians are like the knowledge keeper of everything of one's individual health but if the issue is originating likely from injury musculoskeletal part of it then they don't need to see physician physiotherapists are primary healthcare provider they can assess and diagnose and treat based on their findings and if they do need to reach out the physician they can help you navigate the system because physiotherapist it will be likely you'll be able to see physios much quicker than physician in the area and especially if it's a chronic pain they will need a help of physiotherapist as well because as you mentioned it your case like chronic ankle issue achilles right the tissue is deconditioned and tissue needs a quite bit of strengthening you must have undergone a lot of strengthening stretching exercises manual therapy so pain not only is one of the symptoms but it leads to deconditioning of the tissue that's where the physio comes into the play so do you have the ability like do you have diagnostic tools at your clinic are you able for example to access mris and things like that to determine sources no, of injury no not unfortunately at this moment but physiotherapists being physiotherapists right we do our own assessment mostly through motion orthopedic testing strength specialized testing that gives us ability to make a plan that how good is the tissue's ability where we need to start uh, and based on that we do it often time patients have uh, access to mris ultrasound x-rays if not then we request from family uh, physicians office they can share with us once patient give consent and that's how we are able to kind of like see the full imaging but as well so for those who don't know what is the role of physiotherapy in pain management that's a great question physiotherapy plays a very vital role and it's at the forefront of the pain management we address not only chronic but acute as well mostly people's pain whoever has a pain musculoskeletal origin they need to get better in their pain activities of daily living quality of living right and we provide confidence in motion and increase in independence and daily activity so it's very primary that we need to rehab the tissue if the pain is there for more than 3 months likely it has affected tissue's ability to perform function everyone at a smaller level or higher level how we work we can discuss that in data uh, later as well like how the physiotherapy actually works so like take like an ankle like or an achilles issue like for example what's what sort of work would you do on it physiotherapy is very patient centric and evidence based care so we conduct detail assessment to understand source of pain what's the range function where you stand what's your strength balance especially for ankle i need to look up all those together right conduct a detail assessment and come up with it that which areas you're lacking are you still in pain or the pain stage has been gone the tissue is healed but you're lacking in your balance agility strength you're not able to go downstairs very very functional goal which can make impactful change in your daily living right so that we need to uh, create it in assessment make a plan of care that this is the plan of care next few weeks this is what we are working and this is the result we want to achieve it let's say you want to go back to running that's your goal as a patient you just know that i want to go back to running i don't know how many steps in between those are taken but that's the role of physiotherapists 
to determine, okay, he needs to go back to running. I need to have enough strength, enough balance, and enough agility for his Achilles to do that task. Unfortunately for me, I think that ship has sailed. I've I've already sort of moved right. away from running. It's unfortunate. I used right. to love to run, but but you know I've I've supplemented by rowing and spinning and doing other things that put less right. stress on right. on the ankle. But you know I still do I still do a series of uh, exercises like with a hard squash ball, where right. I'm sort of using it to loosen up the muscles on the bottom of my foot and and right. sort of help with mobility with my ankle. So so I appreciate. Where, where a physiotherapist can come in. So, so let's talk about the kind of pain that persists even if a physiotherapist is helping you. Like you don't have any prescriptive abilities, do you? No, we don't have any prescriptive abilities. Uh, that's where you need, a patient needs to be kind of like, uh, prescribed or navigate through family physician to pain care clinics. So right. there's a special uh, pain care clinics, right, who are equipped with that. And they might have a little bit less of wait time as well. So uh, definitely... Someone, if they are suffering from chronic pain, they need to have a good balance communicating between physician and physiotherapist to help navigate it. So we've talked about pain and how it impacts the person who's suffering the pain, but frequently others are impacted other than the ones who are actually suffering suffering the pain, right? It's not just the individual who suffers the pain. Yes. It's the family, most often the people who are living with it who are affected. Uh, along with the individuals as well, because the individuals who has the chronic pain, they are not able to perform their activities of daily living. They're not able to get their basic task or function done. So it affects significantly on family. And eventually it goes on to the economic part of as well. They are not able to contribute onto the working force. And that has a greater impact on our economy and society as well. Okay. And let's talk about access for care. In your practice, do you see that everybody has equal access to, to, for example, to your services? Our services, um, it's equal access to timely and evidence-based care is very important, leads to better outcome and improve quality of life. In physiotherapy world of it, there are a lot of fundings. Those are helpful to access the care. And people who don't fill into those funding categories often they are the one who may not have the equal access to timely and evidence-based care. So that's a situation we deal in physiotherapy, but there are a lot of different fundings that they might qualify. So it's having an open conversation with a physiotherapist or a physician that which one they qualify. Are your services covered by OHIP or not? Physiotherapy is covered by OHIP. There are clinics who are approved uh, by government, and they are listed on the government website as well. Uh, Those are covered by OHIP. In each city, there are multiple clinics. So patient needs to get a referral from physician or nurse practitioner to be referred over there. There are other fundings as well, like ODSP. In rural areas, if someone is in a smaller uh, settings, right, they might have a local family health team funding. Sometimes they have employer health care benefits, or if they are going through injury, they they will have work or motor vehicle accident rehab funding. Those are dedicated separate funding. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Colleen Hartwick, MD, Dr. Chris Winter, Tracy Sograti, and Malay Patel. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.